From 11FS, I'm Simon Taylor and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you Plaid's European expansion, Westpac chief quits amid money laundering scandal, and RBS's bow moves into the market. All this and much, much more on today's show. Before we start, do you love fintech? Yeah, we know you do. You're listening to Fintech Insider. Um, are you struggling to keep up to date with everything that's going on? Well, you know, you're listening to this show, so you must be interested, right? Uh, great news. We are relaunching the 11FS newsletter, people. Uh, we want to give you, the financial services community and disruptors and curious thinkers, a snack-sized roundup of the biggest stories of the week. Every Friday, you'll receive a summary in our own 11FS style, along with interesting blogs and so much more straight to your inbox. So if you're a newsletter junkie, please, please do hit us up today, uh, 11fs.com forward slash newsletter. Alrighty, let's get on with today's show. Welcome to episode 379 of Fintech Insider. Today, I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Mr. David Breer. How are you doing today, David? Super good. The week has evaporated. I'm not really sure where it <laughs> went. It's uh, suddenly Thursday afternoon. It's kind of bizarre. It's a very sort of, yeah, evaporating kind of week. Mm. I mean, I've just about over jet lag from last week. Like, We definitely need to like shorten the New York trips just to like three days, else I'm just going to keep dying. Yeah, we, we don't want that. We want mm. you to keep living. No please. death. That would be good. Indeed. As always, we're not alone. We're joined by some incredible guests making their uh, Fintech Insider news debuts. Debuts? Debuts. Um, <laughs> I run, Is debuts a word? <laughs> I run Burgundy mm, again. That's good. Uh, we have Oli Betts, who's co-founder and CEO at OpenWorks. Uh, how are you doing, sir? I'm great, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. My first time, so yeah. be gentle. No, we'll, we'll try. Looking uh, forward to it. Thank you so much. Um, and regulars on Blockchain Insider, which is available on iTunes or your favorite podcast client now, uh, but making their Fintech Insider debuts. Uh, we have Aman Kohli, who's Chief Technology Officer for Banking and Capital Markets at DXC. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. No, no. Thanks for thanks for joining and uh, getting involved. And of course, Isabel Woodford, who's a Fintech journalist at Sifted. How are you doing, Isabel? Very well. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. All right, let's get started. Uh, the first story this week was, of course, about Plaid expanding further across Europe. Uh, they're rolling out services in Ireland, France, and Spain after launching in the UK. Uh, the company will allow third parties to integrate with account data from Santander, Bank of Ireland, BNP Paribas, among others. And since coming to the UK, Plaid's worked with fintechs such as Clio and Pandal. It also claims to serve several challenger banks, but hasn't disclosed names. Uh, the company secured unicorn status back in December with investors valuing the firm at more than $2.6 billion. Uh, so before the panel get into this one, uh, we're just going to uh, go to a cutaway. We spoke to Keith Gross, who's head of UK in Plaid, to tell us more. So let's hear from him now. At Plaid, our mission is to make money easier for everyone. We're a financial technology platform that powers many of the innovators in our ecosystem today by providing the infrastructure and tools needed to build financial apps and services. For those that aren't familiar, we cover more than 15,000 banks across North America and Europe and power more than 80% of the largest fintechs, including companies like Venmo, TransferWise, and Coinbase. When we launched in the UK, we introduced our vision to build a fully inclusive financial system in Europe. And now announcing our beta expansion to France, Spain, and Ireland, is further proof of our ambitions to create a global platform that serves as a catalyst for growth within these new markets and makes it easier for businesses to serve a global customer base. So we're really excited to bring our services to France, Spain, and Ireland to spark the next stage of fintech growth. These countries have been our most demanded by customers and have a vibrant ecosystem already. 
For local banks and other financial institutions, Plaid can help provide the reliability and uptime promised in open banking and help expand to the UK, US, and Canada. For developers of fintech apps, Plaid brings a proven platform to deliver better customer experiences at any scale and allow them to easily launch to new geos. So we look forward to helping developers in France, Spain, and Ireland build great services and make money easier for more people. Okay, so that was Keith's um, outline there, and I thought that was excellent and nice and to the point, as producer Laura said. But Isabel, um, what did you think when you saw this story? Yeah, I mean, it's quite difficult to make open banking sexy, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so Platter obviously really helping in that respect and, and, and leading the march. Something that I think is interesting just generally about open banking is is what that might mean for the consumer. I don't think that that's necessarily that clear yet. Um, obviously, we know that it could make potentially in the future, and certainly not yet, but mortgages easier, payments, portals different, if not better. We still don't know. Um, something that I had, you know, I had an interesting conversation this week with someone who was saying that perhaps the likes of plaid could help with this concept of open finance which is and the analogy is the music industry so we used to have old uh, music stores so that would be the incumbent banks then we had itunes so that would be the challenger banks and then we had spotify and the idea is that this open finance mechanism could make banks the spotify or provide a spotify like service to customers which would mean everything integrated into one i've heard that somewhere before david mm-hmm. yeah i've mean, said that a few times is that so, yours? i mean i think the difficulty oh, with that to a certain degree, that was your expression <laughs> i mean i'm sure it's not the spotify <laughs> was the thing it. before i mentioned it yeah. um do i have that power i don't think i do <laughs> yeah do i that <laughs> would be nice do. am i a kardashian <laughs> um i mean i think the i think There's the, an episode for title. my my difficulty with that mm. analogy to a certain degree particularly when it comes to somebody like plaid coming in into to banking is the fundamental difference between iTunes and Spotify wasn't really about the streaming capability. It was about the fundamental change in the business model that happened between those two points. Mm-hmm. Banks are just not ready for that stuff. You mm-hmm. know, it is uh, end of back to the future. They're just not there yet. You know, like uh, their kids will love it, but they're just not ready. Um, so I kind of feel like if they could start engaging with the technology and make the benefit of the technology, that's a good thing. Um, and I think a lot of the a lot of the benefit of Plaid coming here is Europe is doing open banking. You know, in open banking in the US is is still a uh, and actually more globally is still a, a kind of a, a hope rather than a, a you know a regulatory mandated thing. You know, PSD two in Europe is is sort of spearing that so so uh, much further forward than the rest of the world is. But I still think this is a. Um, a start, but it's not really the the place that we need to get to with open banking. Absolutely. Aman, what did you think? So um, I've been watching Plaid when they first kind of announced what they were doing because I was working for uh, US Bank at the time. And what's really good about their proposition is they take some of the difficulty away for these institutions, right? So for a lot of them, just the thought of API enablement is scary. Mm. It's as scary as sleeping and someone stabbing you and you in your sleep. It's that level wow, of scary, okay. wow. right? Visceral. Yeah, yeah. Did not see that coming. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> and um, they've helped take that away, right, given the investment that's in them, given the number of banks that they have under their belts. And what's interesting is the markets they've gone after in Europe that they've announced aren't the most forward fintech markets generally. Is that a polite way of saying something? But, you know, um, a lot of the banks there have legacy systems, they're hard to open up, they're hard to integrate with, they're hard to open up, 
as an API integration platform. And the next phase of API banking is moving over and above kind of account services and into more product lines, product services. And Plaid gives a good enablement of that. Interesting stuff. Ollie, how about yourself? Uh, yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting, Plaid's kind of both strategy and timing to come into the UK. Um, you can make an argument they're a bit late. Um, kind of open banking's been here for a couple of years. Um, I don't think they are too late. I think they'll benefit from uh, kind of local local or more expert UK aggregators that have done quite a lot of the hard work with the banks. I think what we find, we're one of those parties, what we've found is it's taken a couple of years of hard work with uh, bank APIs to get them performant and able to deliver value at scale. And to the point of um, how is it this going to deliver value to end users, you know, real people, you need the APIs not just to be there. So it's one thing for banks to uh, declare sometimes with some fanfare that they've got an API available. It's a very big difference between that working being uh, the uptime that was mentioned by Keith is vital. 100% uptime all the time with millions of customers hitting APIs every day is what you need. So I think the timing's interesting. I think the um, Plaid will benefit from other people's hard work. I think the, the probably advantage they have, and it kind of slightly galls me to say it, but is they've got $250 million dollars. So the war chest is interesting around actually you can solve complexity with um, resource and money. I think probably what's more interesting to me is will they uh, spend that money on uh, the hard work of the technical integration or will they acquire and partner? Mm. So it's really fascinating to me that there's two notable uh, big companies in their cap table, MasterCard and Visa, and actually Plaid are somewhat competing with them. Uh, especially in Europe when you look at kind of MasterCard and Visa's market share uh, in the continent and how they potentially move to more of a partnership with those two parties to really connect, especially when we talk about payments. Yeah, yeah sorry. account to account payments. Please. Yeah, I was about to say that. Yeah, it's entirely because the move of MasterCard and Visa is entirely into account to account right now, and this is a great advantage for them. Interesting stuff. And do you think that this will help US fintechs come to Europe a little bit, Isabel? Because there's um, been a lot of talk about Robinhood coming to market. Mm. There's been a lot of talk about a lot of US fintechs looking at the UK. Um, Plaid is, is often a part of their offering. So is is this that? And, and, and how do you reflect on the other comments? Yeah, I mean, they're slightly, they're slightly separate vehicles, for example, for the likes of Robinhood. Obviously, expanding to Europe is is a, is a difficult challenge for, for for anyone. And particularly, you know, at least they have, like you said, the war chest and Robinhood similarly. Um, so it is a big venture, as it is for the, the Europeans going over to the US. Um, something that I wanted to ask about, actually, I'm curious about how open banking as a payment portal might affect MasterCard and Visa. Like, I, I don't understand how... Is that not in direct competition with MasterCard and Visa? It, it is and it isn't. So MasterCard right now are being very aggressive in supporting it. Hmm. Um, because if you kind of look at the rails of how um, payments are going to happen in open banking, it's going to happen through acquirers. So a lot of those acquirers are supporting open banking. And then MasterCard is quite bullish around account-to-account happening through those flows. Um, they're probably pushing more for business-to-business flows, not so much for consumer-to-business. Um, but it's a small step and a small leap. And there's been extensions announced to open banking APIs to allow, for example, pre-authorization and reservation. So we're kind of going that way. What that means for traditional card rails is going to be interesting. Um, but, you know, it, it, there's going to be plurality out there, cards, are still going to increase, but it'll be 
not as much as it would have been without open banking, I mm. guess. I'd say PSD2 is mm. much more of a direct push against right. the, the networks. I'd say open banking is is more friendly in the way in which it's being implemented, but it's, a, it's an interesting nuance between mm-hmm. the two of them. I think if MasterCard and Visa are smart, which, I mean... I think they probably are given where they are. They should be pushing up to more and more and more of this stuff. It's like where do you where do you continually move to add value, basically? Mm. And and will we see a lot more from open finance rather than open banking in the future? I think that's going to be an interesting area of development. Well, listen, I'm sure this one will run and run, but I'm going to move us to the next story. I mean, open everything. Let's do open. <laughs> let's open everything. Open like, doors, yeah, exactly. windows, yeah. everything. Okay. I mean, if you're going to go buy a bunch of domains, put open in front of everything. Absolutely. Next story, uh, this one comes from Business Insider, and this is about Goldman Sachs may be acquiring E-Trade or merging with U.S. banks. A lot of uncertainty in that headline. Um, Apparently, there are no formal discussions that amount to merger talks, but senior executives have reportedly discussed the deals internally. Scoop here. Um, This also comes in the same week that Charles Schwab announced it will acquire TD Ameritrade in a deal that could be worth up to $26 which we covered last week on Fintech Insider. Um, If Goldman acquired E-Trade, it would gain $346 billion in assets under management, uh, whilst uh, US Bancorp boasts uh, 18.7 million customers, I'm assuming, um, and 3,000 branches. So the rumors come after Goldman spent $300 million on, on Apple Card um, and lost $150-50 million in half-one 2019 alone on Marcus. So big money going around here, people. Hmm. I mean, it sort of sounds like we don't actually know anything about this, and it's a vague, vague rumor, doesn't it? Yeah, it's like, yeah. somebody might have sneezed at some point. <laughs> we think they might have flu. It's like, oh, okay. Um, I mean, it's super interesting, right? I think the U.S. bank one particularly, if like they, like this is, I mean, where do Goldman Sachs rank? Are they like first or second in size of bank out there? So it's like first or second buys fifth or sixth, isn't it? Like that would be a huge thing. I mean, the, uh, the, the sort of, um, you know, gaining assets under management thing, Goldman Sachs, do they need to make their balance sheet even bigger than they do? So I quickly Googled. Um, they've got around about 925 billion assets under management, which makes them fifth after JP Morgan, Bank of America, Citigroup, and Wells Fargo. But importantly, what they'll be going after here is deposits rather than just growing their balance sheet because deposits allows them to fund their balance sheet um, and fund further lending, which, of course, Goldman famously didn't have before. And both of these moves look like that. So both of them seem logical, isn't mm. So, but that's so. That's then fifth biggest U.S. bank by sixth biggest U.S. bank. Oh, something near that, yeah. Mm. And obviously, U.S. bank has much more of a retail presence, doesn't it? In terms of the, you know, Goldman Sachs is not really known for that still. But um, I mean, this would be fascinating if it happened. It, it would. Yeah. Uh, what did you think when you saw this? I was really fascinated by, by whether the rumors are true or not. Um, just from Goldman's generally on sort of um, really, what are they? Are they a bank for rich people or are they a bank for the people? And I think they might be uh, spending a lot of money on a very expensive experiment about whether they are, mm. which one of those they are. I think the retail is really interesting, the things that stand out, like the investment in Apple Card. You guys, I think, last time talked a lot about um, the potential uh, fallout almost from the algorithms they're using there. And it, to me, kind of those things look like a investment bank trying to be a retail bank. And the mistakes you make, I think one of the, Bits in the report was how much money they'd lost due to not even having a debt collection department in place for their mm. lending proposition. I, uh, this sort of feels like it's a almost cultural challenge at the top. They're two different things to try and do if you're trying to serve 
and make people wealthier, that's entirely different to serve people from a core banking and retail perspective. It's different DNA, isn't it, Isabel? And I, I wonder, though, do you what do you think about these moves? Because uh, Sarah Kachansky on our Slack said they feel very different. And, you know, why would you pick one versus the other? Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be the first time that a big bank has acquired kind of a retail-facing bank, obviously, RBS NatWest. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said, I mean, maybe that is their move. Maybe they are reaching out into the masses. Uh, it, it would seem wise. I think the Apple card, apart from the flawed algorithm, um, looks like a fantastic innovation considering where U.S. uh, banking is. Um, You know, they have this spend management feature, which is still very nascent there. And I think you guys had the Marcus CEO on a couple of weeks ago, which I really enjoyed listening to, kind of gave me a a sense of renewed confidence in the offering. Um, And I, and you know, early days, let's not rule them out. And and they could very well do a fantastic retail bank offering. Mm. I mean, we had, uh, so Sam did an interview with Bo Hartman recently. He was mm-hmm. the CTO of, uh, of um, Marcus uh, and has now moved up to be group level CTO across Goldman Sachs. Sorry, it was CTO, uh, yes. So I think if he um, if he's in a view of how this will kind of go and actually he's been the driving force behind basically moving to your point, actually, an organization from a, uh, you know, trading nine to three type vibe. And, you know, there's a there's a batch that deals with everything else, you know, to a 24-7 organization that deals with retail, then actually this might be a really interesting space that, you know, U.S. Bank, I think, operates in, is it half of the states in the states? Mm-hmm. Uh the states in the states, yeah, that yeah, makes sense. Twenty some odd. Yeah. Uh, then actually, maybe it's a very good way of them actually doing this. Is this like massive regulatory arbitrage of like somebody's already done all the processes, somebody's already got these, you know, the back office working and regulatory working, and now we can start moving these things forwards. If it is coupled with getting all of these deposits from a savings perspective, then maybe it's just this insanely large uh, balance sheet balancing that we're just seeing of a, you know, a multi, multi, multi-billion pound company. Aman, you've got a cap markets background. Yeah. What did you think when you saw it? So I think if we look at the macro trend of what's happening here, um, large investment banks are finding it hard to make money for a couple of reasons. Um, regulation is going against them and products are drying up and flows are going other places. So, you know, when we talk about startups, if you look at the way they're funded right now, Traditionally, that would have come through investment banks brokering that funding. That's happening less and less. It's still happening in later series, but earlier on, that's going. And then also the more exotic products where you can really make money are going away. So Goldman is good at surviving. And what they want to do is figure out what does it mean to be a, effectively an investment bank in this heavily regulated world. And one thing they're doing is they're experimenting with retail through Marcus. What U.S. Bank gives them is, to, you know, to your point, a better balance sheet allows them to lend more, which means generate more profits. And what will those products be? Are they going to feed the investment bank? And you tie it into an E-Trade or another sort of customer-facing um, uh, investment vehicle. You can now offer kind of leveraged products or more exotic sort of things. So it, it's all from speculation, of course. I was just going to follow up on that E-Trade point, uh, Amand, because the, the, with post-Robinhood, the U.S. advisory market feels very hot as well. Generally, Charles Schwab and the TD Ameritrade. Yeah. Uh, is there something there as well about putting the pieces of the puzzle together that could be vaguely strategic? Yeah, I think if you look at what Marcus has introduced in Apple Car to a certain degree, it's bringing automation to consumer decisions, which normally would be brokered by uh, very nice people in suits having nice conversations with you. Mm -hmm. And now it's kind of, 
I don't want to say democratizing because that's not quite right, but it's it, it, to the mass affluent and the segment below that, it's making available these other sorts of products. So you can get investment-grade advice or what looks like investment-grade advice earlier on, your wealth profile, so you don't have to be, you know, Daddy Warbucks. Mm-hmm. You can just be remarkably comf- comfortable. Mm-hmm. And it's the Prosecco to the it. champagne metaphor, right? It's uh, <laughs> What a metaphor. <laughs> I mean, is, it, is this, though, is this in that, in that, point though is this basically Goldman Sachs putting a new asset onto their balance sheet and it's 18.7 million people mm-hmm. you know essentially are they investing in having these people on their balance sheet because ultimately that's where the growth is going to come in a inevitable downturn for the next couple of years perhaps I, I think you need to look at what the demographic profile of US bank is and if it matches e-trades for example or something like it and then you tie it into the card proposition and Marcus, and then you suddenly have a potentially very large beast again coming out. And that's their business number two, because their first business is still investment banking. And if you look at the the, the biggest uh, bank on the block, um, uh, it, just go back to Google, uh, with JP Morgan, um, who are bigger than Bank of America, but only just, but JP Morgan is arguably you know, the most complete bank offering out there and has been able to deliver pretty decent results because it had that diversity on, on it, in its portfolio. Mm. But I mean, I mean, they bought Chase, right? Yeah. And, and even yeah. even JP Morgan Chase have had a couple of cracks at it. You know, there's a rumored project going on in the UK to build mm. a retail challenger bank. There's um, Fin that they sort of spun up and shut down. So, I mean, it's interesting. People are people with very big balance sheets. It turns out you can experiment and you can like <laughs> yeah. do things Crazy. and figure out what happens. You know what I mean? Money what? to burn. <laughs> yeah. uh, we um, somebody had mentioned, I think Isabel mentioned that we, we spoke to Bo a few weeks ago, and in a couple of weeks we'll be speaking to Des McDade, who's the UK MD of Marcus, so we will follow up on this one. And the next story is from the BBC, and uh, apparently the Westpac chief quits amid money laundering scandals. So chief executive Brian Hartzer and chairman Lindsay Maxted have resigned after the company has been embroiled in a money laundering scandal with possible links to child exploitation. Australian regulators sued the nation's oldest bank last week for an alleged 23 million breaches of counter-terrorist financing and money laundering laws, uh, resulting in transactions involving around 11 billion. Uh, Usually I like the number 11, but not now. Um, Westpac allegedly failed to monitor the accounts of a convicted child sex offender who regularly sent money to the Philippines. Each of the bank's alleged breaches carries a maximum penalty of 21 million Australian dollars. Uh, And a Westpac competitor paid a 700 million Australian dollar fine for similar breaches last year. Uh, Thoughts when we saw this one? Damn. Appalling. And... This is one area where in um, kind of money remittance, it's the correspondent leg, which is being attacked right now. Mm-hmm. And um, Swift has done some work around this to try and tighten it up a little bit. But like all types of flows, so be it laundering or uh, security risks, you attack the weakest vector. And mm-hmm. clearly the correspondent side of it is is the weakest vector. And it just goes down to, it. you know, we we need proper identity. Uh, coming through this, and it's got to come quickly. But I mean, this is a massive miss. Yeah, KYC is so broken, and and you see this so often that um, banks' procedures for doing that themselves can be, you know, they're that they're in control of that. But at the other side, they're not necessarily in control of where it goes and and who KYC that person. And so there's there's so much room for things that can go wrong. Yeah, I think when I when I saw it, it's obviously pretty shocking. I think it almost the thing that really worried me was kind of how. This felt like a cultural kind of challenge again of um, 
kind of, I think there was something in the article which was profits more important than people came from the kind of commission, which is, I think, kind of interesting. The more interesting thing to me was Westpac's share price increased almost 2% after the news, which is, wow. I think, kind of this kind of systemic challenge around how you... Uh, how we move the dial on kind of thinking about people more than the profit. Mm. I think the KYC bit, I totally agree with. It's really interesting. I, I'm a product person, so kind of how you frame the problem you're trying to solve, where I think traditionally in banking it's been how do we identify uh, where money's going after it's been sent? Not to your point, how do we identify where it's going before it gets sent? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's a fundamental change that needs to happen if you're going to stop this. Yeah, I mean, accountability in this one is really interesting, isn't it? I, I think it's super interesting in this, though, is like if you look at um, a catastrophic systems problems, you know, we've seen Paul Pester get the boot from TSB, what, God, how was that six months ago now? Um, because of a, sort of a catastrophic thing that really he probably wasn't the guy who knew what was going on. He was being advised by other people. Like, does the guy at the top of this company quitting almost immediately when this come out point to uh he actually knows a lot more about it uh, i should say i know nothing about this but his reaction to me kind of admits a lot more guilt than i would have thought it would do of somebody who would have stayed and gone this is a systems thing there's been like major problems in our uh, uh you know fraud mechanisms and we should do a lot more to kind of counterbalance this because basically just going oh yeah i'll go that just seems a little bit odd to me but this is a risk broadly, isn't it? So there were some UN figures um, from 2014, 15, I think it was, where they, they estimated around $2 trillion is laundered every year, of which we detect 2%, of which we then go and further investigate 2%, so 2% of the 2%. The scale of this is massive. And on the back of that, you have um, Danske Bank, about a year ago, uh, through the Estonian branch, there was about $137 billion. The scale of this is genuinely terrifying. Um, is, well, like I say, though, it's whether it's it's whether it's passive or whether it's the people are, are active in it. Mm. You know, there are examples of people, organizations, you know, banks who have been very aware of mm. very naughty things happening in Mexico, naming no names, you know, like things happening and fraud being undertook. But if he knew about this, given the connotations of actually where the money was going and where uh, what it was being used for, then there will be legal ramifications, surely. You know, she, he could face, you know, jail time for this if this is the case, you know? Absolutely. That, that hasn't been ruled out. And the, the general responsibility is at the top for any major failure and for what? something. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, really? Yeah. It's, it's okay, you're not regulated, oh, so fair. you're okay. Um, and and given the given the breaches, both from a kind of regulation point of view, but also given the severity of the human side of this, it was the bare minimum that could have been done. And, you know, the, the setting up of the commission, the setting up of the investigation is um, an important first step but, you know, what are the steps that are going to be done to have the right level of oversight internally? Because unfortunately what happens when regulators react, they don't react in a way to enable the problem to be solved. So, you know, AML regulation mm. has been around for 15, 20 years. It really it's is not, not fit for purpose. Yeah, It is poorly done. It, and there are ways to do it better. And the reaction here is like what happened post-TSB. The industry just went, we're not going to change anything. Whereas the actual reaction has to be, we need to be better at changing faster and better and more controlled. And I think that's a super interesting point, Armand, because um, 
uh, post a lot of the fines that have been coming out into this space for a while, people hired a bigger compliance team to do the same thing. And having more people doing the thing that doesn't work doesn't help. You need to people doing different things. Yeah. I mean, is is a monetary fine enough to deter people doing these things? Or is it enough to make people care? I think if, you know, people are being fined for... PPI and all sorts of bad things, you know. I mean, but billions of pounds have been fined but and nobody's stopping. You know, who was fined? The CEO, the bank was fined. The fraudsters weren't caught. The fraudsters weren't put in prison, right? Um, and with, with each of these things, it's one. There's a corporate responsibility and corporate governance. You have to, you, you have to do that properly. But is that follow through action of who, of who's going to be, you know, if you're culpable, what's what's the punishment? And I think um, the Financial Action Task Force, which is the global body that works with uh, policymakers to set these rules at the national level, has flipped in the last couple of years from focusing on do you have rules in place to do those rules work? How effective are they? So hopefully that starts to bleed through. I mean, if I was Dave Birch right now, I'd be saying this all went to shit when people took away personal liability it, for the CEOs. And they that, should be, through, that played in my yeah, head as well. I know. He got to us, didn't he, at he, some point? Damn that, Dave Birch. Alrighty, um, we'll be back very shortly. Let's take a quick break while she hear from our sponsors. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation, and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation, and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. It's just a few days till our extra special Christmas edition of After Dark. It's already sold out, but we look forward to seeing all of you lucky, lucky ticket holders there for some festive fun and a very special theme, a Fintech Christmas Carol. In the spirit of giving, go on, David. I love this. We're, we're basically telling them, ha-ha, you've already missed out on something. This yeah, is like, but you get to listen to it, That's right? true, yeah. yeah. We, they, we give them something. It's exactly. Good. And we might slip something into the podcast. Who there knows? You go. Um, it, it is Christmas time, after all. And in the spirit of giving, we'll also be hosting our first ever raffle with some extra awesome and very unique prizes, raising money for Save the Children, who are working to repair the 11 schools that were destroyed by the devastating cyclone in Mozambique. In fact, uh, one particular fintech has donated a branded skateboard deck as a prize for the night. Who could that be? I'm waiting to see. Ooh, that's a, yeah, there's a good raffle coming. Uh, we hope you bring your credit cards and Christmas spirit and give generously for this great cause. And for those that can't be there, of course, we'll be bringing the Frentech uh, Christmas Carol to the podcast very soon. All right, let's get on with the show. The next story comes from TechCrunch, and this is about India's Paytm uh, raising a billion US dollars. Uh, the e-commerce and payments firm is now valued at $16 billion, and it's currently expanding into insurance, lending, stockbroking, and investments. The company's best known for its mobile wallet, which allows users to pay bills, transfer money, and secure small loans, amongst other things features. Paytm founder and chief executive Vijay Shekhar Sharma says that the company will use the money to court small and medium businesses. The funding comes as Paytm faces increased competition from international competitors like Google and Facebook. And today, Google Pay and Flipkart's Phone P led the peer-to-peer payments industry, according to industry estimates. Uh, 
India's fintech, Paytm, are just absolutely kicking us. It's, it's phenomenal, right? And there's a lot to be said for how India has built the India stack. They've dealt with standardized APIs. They've solved identity. They've increased inclusion. And they've allowed a competitive marketplace to develop. So Paytm have a relatively uh, strong customer base, not because they were first, it helped, but because they continually adapted and innovated. Um, you know, WhatsApp launched um, uh, an offering there, I think it was last year, to sit on top of the UPI rails just to see what it was like. Um, and that fed into their overall project as well, I think. So it's, it's great to see. Um, the valuation, I think we need to express in units of WeWork. <laughs> I think that's a far more valuable way of understanding these things. Yeah. Indeed. Well, we work when. Well, <laughs> yeah. <at> pop. <laughs> when work. Um, it's interesting. Um, Alibaba has 42% of Paytm. Do you think there is something playing out here in um, the big tech moves around payments? I think there's something really interesting in that. And in like, what's the winning business model? So um, when I was looking at this kind of WhatsApp and their kind of market share of communication, you've obviously got Facebook can monetize through ads, you've got Google Pay. Google can, uh, can monetize through ads as well. So Paytm, I think, is interesting on this strategy that he declared of the investments really going towards the peer-to-merchant kind of development of that relationship and actually being there for merchants in-store and being the payment method in-store is really interesting because that's where it feels like they do have a competitive advantage in the business model where I think it's really smart because they, they can't beat Google and Facebook through ad revenue. So um, they've really thought about how they're going to monetize. Yeah, and the interesting thing with both of those social media platforms is they've been focused on small, medium businesses. And if you look at a lot of, say, Google's latest patent, patents or patents, whatever, they are focused on um, encouraging small businesses to use their network. So, you know, they have a patent that allows you to figure out how effective are Google searches and Google Maps directions of driving footfall to your store. And, and weirdly enough, it's anonymous. Uh, and they can mm -hmm. figure this out, right? So it's all about that small, medium business and capturing them because that's the engine of all economies. Mm. I'd be quite interested to see how this could be replicated because I think the key differentiator, and I, know, I don't know very much about Indian e-commerce, is the levels of trust that users may have in it relative to the trust that we may have in the Googles and the Facebooks of the world of the world here in the West. So if if this has a you know unique stand in among Indian customers and a unique level of trust, then the answer is probably it can't be replicated in the same way because of that. I mean, it, it, it's... It's just an insane how quickly it's been spurred, though. It's like uh, demonetization, what, like three years ago in yeah. a major way, overnight spurred, uh, you know, digital payments to be the, the only way you could really move it forward. And so whether and UPI. And, yeah, so, yeah. I mean, that that and, I mean, payments is like OG fintech, right? It's like, it's, it's the maturity of the market. If you mm -hmm. kind of look at Stripe and everybody else kind of globally as well, those guys are now at a scale where they're able to expand out into insurance or lending or whatever because they've just got such a fantastic foothold in the market but i mean in, india's a it like you say india's a unique market because of the sort of reasonably overnight changes um but equally I'm, i mean it's similar to the impessa story really it's there was a market conditions that made it so successful that hasn't been replicated elsewhere um but every big geo seems to have this story it's like you get out there you acquire a massive uh, amount of customers you use that money and pivot into the community for other things and it i mean it just makes sense doesn't it really yeah and you know what drives the trust here is it's built on top of a 
a safe interface UPI, right? It's, it's a standardized interface. But the other thing that's missed over and above demonetization is there was an active drive by the government to create bank accounts for those who were not banked. Mm. Which uh, was huge, wasn't it? 65% increase in inclusion. Wow. And that was done because um, a lot of farmers, for example, when they were getting their money from the government, it used to be mediated by, by middlemen. And very little money went end up in the farmer's po- uh, pockets. So this was driving a lot of that. And it's, it's starting a phase to allow a social net to be developed in India. Um, and this is, you know, one, two, three, four steps. Mm. And I think in other countries and other geographies for this to happen, you need to be thinking a lot more strategically. And there, there is a role for government or policy on one side, not to get too overly political coming up to our election, right? But, um, and there is a role for private sector. Um, so you see what's happening in P27 and the, God knows what's going to happen with the terrible Pepsi acronym in payments around Europe. These and PSD2, this just drives inclusion and drives digitization. But we have to make sure the net stays wide and access is maintained. And I think to Isabel's point, it feels like privacy is a luxury of the wealthy, um, especially the, the way Apple is selling it at the moment. But um, the, the <laughs> All right. Android fa- fanboy. <laughs> but but it, but it, these massive social problems, you know, you, we saw it with China. We're seeing it now with Grab and Gojek, the, the emergence of the, the super app trying to solve for uh, the merchant side first. Is this why, do you think, that the big techs from the Western side haven't been as effective at doing um, the chat quite the same way? Yeah, I think so. Like, if you look at how long it took Google, to go back to, to that example, to get Google Pay right, or GPA as it is now, it took, what, four iterations Mm-hmm. Right? Which is fine. It goes to show how you work, you iterate, you learn, you continue. But it's done in a very non-uniform way. And again, it, it's hard to drive standardization in financial services. But when it is there and when it is present, it drives the right level, to use UK terms, of end-user outcomes. Ooh, nerdy. Um, I'm going to move us to the next story, and this comes from Finextra, and it's about Nationwide opening an API sandbox for the mortgage industry. Um, so the Building Society will help third-party developers pilot apps that need to speed up the mortgage processing for brokers. Uh, the sandbox APIs uh, offer third party, are offered so that third-party systems can connect with nationwide credit risk and back-office systems. The goal is to reduce the overhead, allowing brokers to input information once and have it shared between systems. And Ian Andrew, who's Director of Intermediary Relationships at Nationwide Building Society, says... Brokers generate a significant proportion of our mortgage lending. Uh, it's so so. It's important that we also invest in our services. Um, we, Isabel, earlier you talked about open finance. Do you think this is this is part of that trend? Yeah, actually. So I was just talking to Mojo Mortgages this week. I don't know if you guys have come across them. They're kind of a digital broker, if you like. Uh, and they've said, you know, 80% of mortgages in the UK are done through a broker. So that makes sense for NatWest, uh, nationwide, sorry, um, NatWest on the mind. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, if this, if this, is is helpful for nationwide and fantastic but i do think that the wider um you know digitalize digitalization of the brokerage system in the uk is much more exciting uh, and mojo trussell habito uh, you know maybe this is nationwide trying to catch up 
with them. Mm. I mean, it's the the buying of a property is such a broken process, right? There's so many weird and wonderful bits in in the mix, and all never of them done it. Disclaimer. But... I mean, uh, I'll <laughs> look forward to that. Welcome to <laughs> 1983, where there is many bits of paper that you shall fill. Mm-hmm. Um, like literally, it's like stamps on bits of paper move these things forward. Whether it's conveyancing or all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff, um, valuations of properties and all sorts of weird things. Tell I mean, us more. I mean, I know. Yeah, join in next week for David's mortgage tips. Um, like all of this end to end is just not great. So the bit where you go and find out how much money the bank allows you to borrow to go and buy the thing that's yours is interesting. You know, so if they can, you know, daisy chain these things together with interesting different services and APIs, then great. But weird to start with broker. You know, I mean, like yeah. actually, mo- most of this for me. I mean, the reason why I like. Uh, Habito and those types of guys is like I don't have to talk to people and like they take all of the problems away from me but so talking to a broker seems like the uh, sort of antithesis of that really well that's I wonder is it then that there's a new type of broker emerging like Habito like those other guys and this is to serve them rather than tr- the traditional brokers maybe yeah. it's a brand image thing because when you say broker I'm like a man in a shop yeah. where I have to go on the high street it's just Digital somebody that shops broker. around yeah. the yeah. what's the last time you're on a high street though do they exist? I think it, it could be interesting again. I think if you throw it up to open finance level, it gets interesting. I think if you throw it up to, uh, said open, open everything level. If you look at mortgages again, uh, as David, you said, um, actually, that's a re- this sort of can I get a mortgage thing? How much can I borrow is an interesting part of the process. Personal experience kind of alert. Uh, actually, the more painful parts of the process are then. I've been offered some money. I now want to buy the house. Uh, if you, there's so much more that could happen. This could be the start of in terms of the conveyancing process, valuations, searches, all kind of things like that. I think for Nationwide, it's uh, a good use of an emerging um, pattern or strategy where you open up APIs, get the people who ex- are experts in solving problems and innovating to benefit from those. And um, we've done a lot of work with Nationwide through Open Banking for Good, which is a similar model, which is, hey, uh, what they've done really well is say, we've got some problems we need to solve. We admit we're not the best place people to solve it. Here's the piece that you're missing, which is a data and access to our systems, kind of go figure, solve it. Um, I think it's uh, worked well for them in other areas that I've been involved with. I could see it being quite uh, a, ultimately for them, cost-effective way of solving a problem that they've got. Well, I mean, that that's good. I mean, hopefully they're using this as a way, as experiment one. Uh, because the way it's positioned right now, it's to help them with a niggle. It's not to help a br- broader marketplace, mm. which is the way how a lot of incumbents deal with problems, right? Um, but what's interesting, I was doing some work with a big national bank uh, last year, and we were looking at the mortgage process, and they printed out the whole process, and they put it on a wall, three and a half meters long, wow. from start to finish. Name them. Name. Them. I, I, I will. I will <laughs> offline, right? But, but the thing is, they wanted to solve the problem. The way they want, they wanted to address the problem was to deal with the whole owning a home experience. Yeah. And you know, there's so many things you can fix, and there's so many things you can't fix. But if you can make the whole journey better, mm. because buying a house is actually one part. It's probably seventy percent of the stress. But then the next stressful bit is. Couch. Uh, <laughs> exactly. And so there's a, it's a really interesting fintech, and I forget the name, but um, the, our very own job father, Ryan Garner, uh, who leads our jobs to be done and research practice and consulting, often talks about um, thinking in terms of, I, I don't want to have a mortgage. I want to 
uh, buy a house. And, that, you know, people have been saying that in, in banking for, for many, many years. That's not new. But what's interesting about this fintech is it's actually a, a, a savings app. And what it does is it shows you, based on your monthly savings, which areas can I afford to live in? And what, what house could I have if I keep saving at that rate? So it's it's kind of, oh, well, if I save at this rate, I can live in these nice areas. But if I don't save that much, I will never live in those areas because I won't save enough. And I think thinking about those different parts of the journey becomes really, really key. Yeah, you just bought a nice car. You've got to live in Norwich. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I feel like that happened. Yeah, I mean, I'm out there still. It's <laughs> what two kids do to you. I mean, it's it's interesting for, for Nationwide's perspective, though, like being in a situation where, I mean, their, their heritage is mortgages, right? It was how they were founded. Mm-hmm. It was the, you know, pounds in a pint cl- glass and, you know, a community sort of mortgage setup. So the idea that those guys are sort of going back to their heritage a little bit and trying to be more innovative in that space kind of makes sense. Yeah, hats off to them. We haven't seen anybody else do stuff like this. And I like the idea of launching something that's ahead of regulators pushing them to do it and testing it with people. Yeah. Well, I, and it's part of the thing how Nationwide has responded to its regulatory slap last year is they're embracing openness a lot more. They're embracing digitization a lot better. But there was an interesting story today on Finextra where Co-op is partnering with Freedom Finance to open up a lending and loans marketplace. So it'll be interesting how that works out. Mm-hmm. The future of finance is open. Here we go. All right. Um, next story comes from Finextra as well. Um, Revolut is launching uh, GBP direct debits. Um, so the features available to customers in the European economic area with uh, local UK account details. Customers will be able to make payments direct from their Revolut accounts for things like gym memberships, utility bills, or subscriptions. Customers will be protected from fraud by the um direct debit guarantee, and the new functionality will use Modular's direct debit mandate. Revolut has used Modular's APIs since 2017. And the Revolut CEO, Nick Storonsky, said, we are providing Revolut customers with an alternative digital payments infrastructure, unshackled by a reliance on traditional, slow, legacy banking. What were your thoughts when you saw this, Ollie? I was I was interested. I'm a Revolut customer. Um, I It's a feature I've probably been waiting for for a little while. I th- think a few people have sort of said, why is this exciting? Because everyone else has been offering direct debits forever. I think it's it's kind of, for me, it's interesting with Revolut, Monzo and others are doing a great job of um, about almost jobs to be done, kind of incremental feature releases. I think my, as a customer, Reven, uh, Revolut experience has been, I used it first for Forex, it saved me money, I was happy, and then I kind of incrementally that they're upselling me to use it for more. So this move is interesting because now I could actually potentially use it as getting close to a primary account. Uh, You compare it to Monzo, they kind of needed direct debit day one because they were wanting to be a checking account. So I I think it's interesting, not revolutionary. Why do you you think it took them longer to go here? Do you think it was a strategy thing? I think it was a strategy thing. I mean, I probably, a bit of uh, insider knowledge warning, kind of know modular fairly well. I think for them as well as the underlying infrastructure, they focused on um, really fast, dynamic payment methods first because that's where the future's going. And it's almost now a sort of backfill exercise of, well, hey, for certain things, direct debit's still a good method. Mm. It gives some control to the consumer about repeatable ongoing payments. So let's make sure we have that in the stack or in the suite. Um, 
I think it's more to do with that. Um, there's a level of complexity in there as well that I won't go into on the kind of direct debits. I mean, it's interesting to start seeing these guys fill in more and more of the gaps, right? As you say, it's like the the reason for not being able to use people, you know, whether it's Starling or Monza or Revolut, whoever, as like your primary, to your point, uh, kind of starts to sort of ebb away, doesn't it? So it will be interesting. I know, obviously, Monza have pushed pretty hard to get people to, to move over with the we'll pay you a day earlier thing. And, you know, various different players are kind of trying different tactics. But, I mean, does anybody around the table use a fintech player as, like, your primary bank account? There's lots of people shaking their heads. No, shout out to my wife, Haley, who just did, did go full Monzo um, and had her first wage go into full Monzo. And that was largely from trying to change her name from Dixon to Taylor. Um, <laughs> um, you're like, having, screw it. having such frustration with her incumbent bank doing it. Wow. Um, yeah. Is that what full Monzo means? It's like, I've got married. I can't change my name. <laughs> Why not? I've got a full fintech. Exactly. I think it's that tro- that tro- I like the Trojan horse model of um, sort of, uh, so I, I, I really like it as a strategy for challenges because you've got the incumbents kind of monitoring switching rates yeah. and you get this secret switcher. So, you know, that secret switch oh. of, oh, actually, I started using it for just my expenses to track them better. Now my salary is there. Now I'm borrowing money from them. And all of a sudden, there's no switch metric warning yeah. the incumbent. Yeah. And the customer's gone for all intents and purposes. Well, I, yeah, I think it, uh, we've sort of referred to that as like zombie accounts. Because the problem that you've got there is like the incumbent organization still carries all the cost of that account that's there. I mean, in my example, I've got a Monzo account and I've got a Lloyd's account. Lloyd's have got my where my salary gets paid into and where all the bills are paid, but I'm not transacting on it in any way, shape or form or logging on to internet banking. And it's like, they're carrying all the cost with like none of the benefit. They're like, please take a loan. And I'm like, shoo, you lawyers. <laughs> like they just don't get Go any away, benefit you. from it. You know, so it is going to be interesting at some point whether, and it's going to be so hard for them because are they going to have to go, look, we're not seeing any transactions. We're just carrying all the cost. We're going to have to start shutting down some of these accounts because they're just not profitable for us in any way. Yeah, so I... I think there's a couple of things. So one thing, Revolut's quite interesting is that it's abstracting away bank accounts. So its focus has been, look, you have this thing. It's called a Revolut thing, right? And you can do your payments. You can do your direct debits. You can manage your life without thinking about it, um, which is a wonderful conceit. And that's probably part of the reason why they were waiting for the modular APIs to get right and the system to get bedded in. I think with incumbents, they don't really care about current accounts because they don't make money from them. So if you look at Lloyd's in particular, and I have a half-written blog post on this, right? It's called Equivalence, right? Uh, God knows when it will be done. But it's looking at where's the energy of products and product portfolio coming in. If you look at Lloyd's, it's actually all around lending, mm-hmm. mortgages. Like There's like 30 different types of mortgages you can get from Lloyd's between Lloyd's and Halifax. Mm-hmm. And it's all very focused, tailored. Always speak about fintech, right? They know their customers. They know what they need and is speaking to the market. Accounting, holding a direct deposit account? Well, it was always a loss leader. Um, And I wonder if there's a risk of them seeing it only as a loss leader and not the customer service leader, the the thing that keeps you loyal to me. If you see it as that, does it, are they seeing deposit flight to the point of like, you know, David, that sounds like what they're having from you. Like it's not, maybe not everything and it's drips and drabs, but you're seeing the deposit flight so that they can't lend as much as they used to. And then eventually you do get the secret switches. I don't think you necessarily just lose the revenue. I think you lose the mind. You know yeah. I mean, like, actually, it's, it's brand affiliation in any way, shape, or form. And I, and I think that, ultimately, I think that's the biggest risk. Because at some point, you wake up and realize nobody cares about you as a brand, you know? 
Indeed. All right. Um, we could go on this one forever, I'm sure, but uh, we've got a media team that have lives and I'm going to keep us moving. Um, so the next story comes from Reuters via Fintech Futures. Um, shout out to those guys. And it says a Brazilian fintech says it's the first world's LGBT plus bank. Um, so Pride Bank has launched in a beta, beta to uh, support the gay community bank without discrimination. Um, the uh, company offers a digital prepaid credit card and will give 5% of its income to the Pride Institute, a U.S. organization that supports LGBT plus charities and shelters. Customers will be able to include their chosen name on their cards as an important benefit, of course, for trans people. Um, Pride Bank launches amid attacks on the LGBT plus community from Brazilian President Yair Bolsonaro last year. Uh, he threatened to excise mentions of homosexuality from school textbooks and said that the country must not become, quote, a gay tourism paradise. Um, interesting that this launches uh, kind of kind of coming into Brazil, which has been a very hot fintech market, definitely underserved and quite probably overcharged community there. It's a weird one, isn't it? I mean, first take, I was like, wait, do we need this? And then reading further into it, I was like, oh, my God, we need this, apparently. Like, yeah. I mean, it's pretty um, it's pretty sad that actually in 2019, we're at a stage where actually people in any geography anywhere need this type of thing to be a thing. Um, but at the same time, I'm like, actually, given there is so much, you know, seemingly sort of persecution from that perspective, having a card that you use in a public place with these things might actually be a pretty negative experience for people to kind of have. So I don't know, I'm I'm undecided whether I think this is a I mean it's a good thing because of its inclusion, but it's a it's a very precarious situation if actually it carries a a target for people in a way that actually um, is probably unnecessary. I I think if you're addressing a community that's underserved, no matter what it is, um, it's good because clearly there's something around financial services and being part of the uh, LGBT plus community that you're being excluded from. So perhaps getting a mortgage, perhaps getting a mm. loan, perhaps opening an account, mm. right? You, you, I, I'm, I haven't been to Brazil, so I, I don't know where it where it's following in the kind of day-to-day for people. Mm. Um, but if, if something is as serious as you're having uh, a prime minister going around and censoring textbooks, that's pretty weird. I think it it's a good we talked about KYC earlier I think it's a kind of interesting example potentially where in probably unintentionally kind of some banking processes don't serve certain parts of our population so uh, you mentioned your wife switching to Monzo and doing that because that was the easiest place to change her name imagine for people where it's really important to them that they can either change their name or be identified under a certain name and how that potentially today actually doesn't line up with how you do know your customer mm. processes was the thing that kind of stood out to me and I was kind of again product hat on thinking like how, how would I solve that I've got compliance and conduct on one side to the story we talk, talked about earlier about being able to identify customers and then I've got being able to deliver the right service to a valuable customer and valuable person it's uh it's a bit of a head scratcher actually on how you manage that. I, do, I mean, your point, I was going to say, discretion will be absolutely key and not just that data protection, you know, not just in the street, but what happens when those people are enlisted in this bank and that might, you know, police, inf- you know, intrusion or whatever it might be. So data security, absolutely key here. In terms of sustainability, I'm dubious, but perhaps, uh, like you say, this could teach the incumbent something and there's a potential there for partnership, white labeling, acquisitions. 
Yeah, hopeful. Alrighty, our and finally story this week is a change of pace, and this is RBS's bow moving into the market. Uh, story comes from Reuters, and RBS's answer to Monzo installing is now live on the App Store and Google Play. Um, apparently, it's already been targeted by fraudsters, prompting the bank to ask RBS for help. Um, the app's selfie-taking process is also unique. Um, it asks users to take a photo of their face with their eyes closed and their tongue out. Um, Add into the fact that Bo, uh, as a brand name, uh, with father, with the father over the O means cow in Gaelic, you can understand why the response has been somewhat mixed. Um, David? I think this is weird. Um, does everybody want to have a go first, or shall I just go with this one? I just I want mean, to I'll add just one thing, which is uh, there's been a few things about the complexity of, uh, or the challenge of Bo, two words, and spell check. I think it's more a smell check problem yeah. from a brand new oh, perspective. Oh, really I had to say it. B.O. I mean, there, there has been the problem that uh, it doesn't bow auto change, doesn't it? So when actually it's sent anywhere, isn't it? What's, what does this say? So it's literally changed. Every time bow sent as a headline of anything, it gets updated to be, it's like ampersands, hashtag, something, something, well, something, doesn't it? Yeah, that's that's the that's the encoded version of it. it. That's, that's the Unicode uh, yeah. representation of the it. fancy code. It just seems like this has been so badly thought through and delivered from my perception. You know, again, sort of saying, it, it seems like, um, I think if you kind of look at a lot of organizations that sort of face into these types of things, it just starts feeling so soulless. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's like for all of the purpose of like, what Nikolai, what Amboden, and what Tom Blomfield is standing up to try and do is bring about purposeful banking. You know, they're fixing uh, jobs to be done. They're fixing sort of niches that are, you know, underserved or overcharged in the market. Um, and this just feels for me like it's just like very, very soulless banking. You know, I think the only way that really corporate challenges can work is if they're based on a fundamental, uh, you know, cultural talent, operational uh, transformation. And this for all intents and purposes just looks like the the whim of like a very senior banker and a bunch of consultancies spending a hell of a lot of money. Because if you look closely at what they've done, they've took nearly two years and probably more than Starling, Monzo and Revolut did together to get to where they're at. Um, the other thing I'd say is, Oh my God! Have you looked at the reviews on the App Store? Like, <laughs> I, I, clearly somebody was paid to go and drop a bunch of reviews. Well, on the I app can store. sample some for you if you'd like. Go ahead. Um, this is from uh, Abbey Apps, uh, and they say uh, five stars, simple KYC and easy to use, regular consumer language there. Uh, it says, I downloaded the app and my KYC was done in minutes. Uh, unusual for my experience with another big bank earlier, because you sign up for lots of banks every day. Um, now I'm able to move my money into savings pot and set targets for my spending. I was also surprised to see how much money I spent on coffee and food. It's helping me consciously avoid certain spending. Great app. Yellow color makes me feel brighter as well. Wow. What customer knows what KYC is? No customers know what wow. KYC is. This is bullshit. It really I mean, I, is. I feel like... What, you it... think a fake reviewer? 100%. Read through <laughs> oh, them. These it, are it, fake reviews. Well, there might be genuine reviews, right? But the thing is, 2,000 of the 3,500 are staff mm -hmm. that are using it. And um, this is very much to your point, right, David, which is it's taken two years to build something that even Starling, Monzo, and Revolut weren't at two years ago. So not only are they behind the curve, they're behind an old curve. Hmm. I think um, there's probably a bit of a, I'm going to defend them slightly. I no, think um, when you speak 
to the team behind this and the individuals involved, which I did. It was about six months ago. But the mission they articulated to me was they were targeting and wanting to help the 17 million people in the UK who have less than £100 in savings. So they did have that core mission, which I think is really needed, uh, really genuine. And this feels to me like a poorly executed brand and marketing exercise, which... um, I wouldn't underestimate the impact of that and how much it will set them back. Yeah. When you meet the people involved, they genuinely want to solve a problem. I think it just it's a really interesting, in years to come, I think it could be an interesting case study of really positive intent, badly executed marketing. Well, and I mean, there's a lot of those. If you look at, I mean, Finn was shut down for a very similar reason, was actually what they did. And actually, if you look at many of the banks that spun out of big banks before, you know, Tesco Bank, really, great intentions, you built a small version of RBS. You know, for all intents and purposes, between, you know, RBS and, you know, the various kind of suppliers that are in there. And we should say there are, uh, there is nothing wrong with corporate challenges. This is a good thing to do. If you can fundamentally change what your cost structure is in your organization and deliver much better experiences. Um, but for everything you kind of look at on this, it's not that. And you should say there's some really good people there, like Ollie Perdue, you know, mm-hmm. formerly of Loot, you know, there's a bunch of Loot people over there. They're a great people, um, but there's a lot of people. Uh, and I'm like, if you were a startup at this stage, you'd be about 50 people. Um, there's about that, 400 now. Uh, this is being run like a bank project, not a fintech startup. And, and just kind of RBS had a great launch last year with Till, right? NatWest Till is the complete opposite in terms of how it was launched, how it came to market, how it understood its customers. Um, so hopefully this is just a marketing misstep. But, you know, as I said on Twitter this week, you know, fada off. So, yeah. Well, yeah. I think there's something interesting about how much press, mainstream press, there's been around this. And it makes you question the motives. To, to come back to, to your point, Oli, which is, uh, I think, uh, the, the really interesting one, which was there are probably people in there that really, really wanted to do this for genuine reasons mm-hmm. and solve a real problem for customers. Let's not take that away because that problem is real. And I think that intent's there. But the, uh, the execution of achieving that i look at a i look at like guys like chip and uh, plum and all those folks that have done something different and how you solve that problem might not be by trying to quote unquote copy where monzo and starling were two three years ago and so it feels like the desire was to do that and say look we're cool too rather than and and that may not be the case i think the, the genuine desire may have been to to financially include and solve a problem but it was something in the execution that feels like it's wrong. this might be culture again that it's sort of you give a certain um, cultural setup and set of uh, an incentive structure, a challenge, and they'll solve it in a completely different way to two people who really care about something sure. and whose livelihood depends on it. Yeah. So I think it's almost a case of that, which is I think the pace thing and the change curves really interesting on they're already behind what chance do they stand uh, kind of catching up now? It's going to be really tough. On that tough. point, how do corporates start to feel like a corporate and give themselves those constraints? Um, just how do they how do they create that feel? Because I think, um, Isabel, you probably see a lot of this stuff and you see a lot of startups. What do you think the difference is? I mean, it's surprising for, for a bank like RBS not to get something like branding, right? You know, a lot is riding on them. I would say, you know, like just piggybacking off what Ollie said, this might not be... Uh, intended as a Monzo-esque current account, the reason perhaps that there's withdrawal fees is that they are incentivizing people to save. Mm. And like you said, you know, in this kind of alternative where they might have a cheap overdraft, uh, you know, I know that already exists for Monzo, but for example, facility, instead of a high uh, interest loan, I mean, who cares about a dodgy name if that 
gives you a cheaper load, right? right. So yeah. let's absolutely. think about the non-fintech nerds. Then, then absolutely, yeah. that's and good so like this, that might be something to explain this. Uh, perhaps we're looking at this at a different, uh, the wrong angle. You know, a different framework might make this look like a more attractive uh, offering for a very certain demographic. That's that's the instinct I get. And I think to kind of the point earlier on, which is, it's how they adapt. So the fintech banks are releasing something new every few months. So, okay, this is version one. What's version 1.2? What's version 1.3? And how do they respond? And can you iterate on this? Well, let's see. I'm sure this one will run and run. And uh, one last point from David before we go. My prediction, within 18 months, they'll get bored of this. They'll get bored of it. And I think within 36 months, it won't exist. Prediction made. Uh, come back to the show and to find out more in 36 <laughs> months. Uh, alrighty, that wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to our guests. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Isabel? So I'm at sifted.eu. For those who don't know us, we're a Financial Times-backed uh, startup, new startup. We cover European startups, uh, and I cover fintech, and I'm at I underscore Woodford on Twitter. Brilliant. Uh, how about yourself, Ollie? Uh, Ollie Betts with a Y on LinkedIn and uh, openworks.com for the business. Brilliant. And yourself, Aman? Uh, DXE.technology for my corporate me, at A. Coley on Twitter. And I don't speak anything corporate there. And I'm on LinkedIn where I'm more grown up. Ooh, so which flavor of Aman would you like? Absolutely. <laughs> Take your pick. Um, David? Uh, over on Twitter, at David Brew. And you can find me at S.Y. Taylor on Twitter. Uh, what did you think of today's stories? Let us know on Twitter at Fintech Insiders or email podcast at 11fs.com. And don't forget to vote for us in the British Banking Awards. We'd really appreciate it. Alrighty, thanks for listening. Goodbye.